0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day Alan. G'day Darren. It's Thursday the 17th of June today in the afternoon and our Prime Minister has arrived back from a big international trip and we are going to use his travels to structure our episode. We'll start with his pre-departure speech in Perth and then move to the Singapore stopover and then the G7 and then finally some bilaterals with the UK and France. But we're going to begin with his speech, which he delivered at the Perth US Asia Centre on the 9th of June. And I think one can infer quite a lot from the title of the speech, which was, A World Order That Favours Freedom. Now, media coverage of the speech noted that the PM called for World Trade Organisation WTO reform to address the growing use of economic coercion, clearly in Australia's interest right now, but also his assessment of the risks of miscalculation and conflict. But let's get into our
1: own analysis, Alan. Um, Was this an important speech to you? Well, I think it was, uh, Darren. Uh, For me, it seemed like a final definitive shift from the Australian foreign policy of the past 30 years or so. A core part of that policy, you know, going back to Hawke and Keating's focus on APEC, uh, how it's on the East Asia Summit, even this government's uh, free trade agreement with China only a few years ago, all of that was directed at reinforcing openness across the Asia Pacific, that is lowering trade barriers, opening investment opportunities, managing political differences. Now, I mean, you and I have discussed regularly that that's been changing with gathering speed in the past two years, of course, but The language that Morrison used in that Perth speech, I thought was the most unambiguous expression that we've had of the change. Uh, So I went back and compared it, for example, with the 2017 foreign policy white paper, which declared that Australia would promote an open, inclusive and prosperous Indo-Pacific region in which the rights of all states are respected and that uh, Australia would support a balance in the Indo-Pacific favorable to our interests and promote an open, inclusive, and rules-based region. Morrison's Perth speech, in contrast, called for a strategic balance in the region that favours freedom, and indeed a world order that favours freedom. Could you read that as...
0: clarifying or updating our sort of more broadly expressed interest in the 2017 White Paper to include freedom? Maybe you didn't need to be as explicit back then, but you do
1: now. Our interests have always included freedom in in sort of different manifestations. But to express it uh, this way can only be read as an unambiguous declaration by Australia that it's working to support a balance of power in the world and the region against China. I just don't think you can read the language or the intention any other way. I'm you know, always up for counter arguments, but it uh, does seem that way to me. In 2017, the government was declaring its commitment to strong and constructive ties with China. It was welcoming China's greater capacity to share responsibility for supporting regional and global security. That's changed. And for Morrison, um, the trip all the way has really been China, Mm. especially the collection of support for Australia and leaving aside just some climate change discussion and the UK FTA, which we'll come back to, that's been Mm. a press story as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you said you're open to counter-arguments. Let's try one on. I mean, if the PM were here, he would probably say that not only is such a balance of power logic not implied in his speech, he indeed explicitly refutes it when he says, quote, this is not about drawing, as we gather in Cornwall for the G7, a closed circle around a particular club, that's not it. To the contrary, it is about ensuring we maintain an open rules-based global system that supports peace, prosperity and aspirations for all sovereign nations.
1: Yeah, though he does, I mean, you say uh, the balance of power logic is not implied, but stated openly. And I I think it is different. A rules-based order, which is what he was just talking about then, is different, I reckon, from a balance that favours freedom, because it adds a normative component to the objective. And it also complicates, uh, by the way, in other situations, our insistence on the centrality of sovereignty in the international system.
0: I think I agree that there is a contradiction there, I think. And I wonder if that reflects a growing contradiction between the principles, if you want to call them, of of openness and freedom, that if you're going to want an order that privileges freedom in some way, or that necessarily means it becomes less open because of your hostility towards governance systems and governance approaches that go the other way. I mean, my own pushback to the PM's hypothetical response would be that yeah you know, he is framing the task ahead in this speech as one for liberal democracies and only liberal democracies, mm. you know saying that they must, quote, tend to the gardening with renewed clarity, unity, and purpose. Now, I guess you could say that this makes sense given he was headed to effectively a summit of democracies with the G seven. But I would certainly prefer that he framed the challenge of finding an order that favours freedom as being sort of one that's worthy because on important issues like climate change and keeping an open economic system, that's in everyone's interest, that you could sort of link a type of freedom to those values, which we know all countries, or at least almost all countries, including China, care about. And, you know, he had one line in the speech, which kind of was a nod to that when he said, we need all nations to participate in the global system in ways that foster development and cooperation. But I think you do a better job of linking whatever this concept of freedom is to tangible outcomes that everyone cares about. Um, My other point is that to me, this speech was him responding to larger political forces, and I'm mostly thinking of the Biden presidency. There is a fascinating discussion happening in the US right now about a Biden doctrine and what that looks like. But it does seem that at its heart, the defining characteristic of the president's thinking at this moment in time is that the US and its partners are engaged in a competition of systems between democracies and non democracies, yeah, between the G7 nations, if you will, and China and Russia, amongst others. And the debate in the US is about whether this is a good idea, yeah, whether values and governance systems should be central. And I think part of the problem is that once you go down a values line, you very quickly get caught up in contradictions as we've discussed in the past. Is India a democracy? You know, is Vietnam someone you'd cooperate with under these principles? But I saw Prime Minister Morrison's speech as trying to fit into this framing. You know, he spoke of, quote, competing models for economies and societies end quote and that seeking an order quote that was informed by liberal values and grounded in rules-based institutions and he dedicated he had five i think main points or planks the speech and one of them was on the goal of demonstrating that liberal democracies could work
1: yeah you can see how australian language is changing to reflect the new discourse in washington you know, out with neg- negative globalism <laughs> and in with uh, with uh, <laughs> partnerships and making things work.
0: Yeah. Indeed, yeah. I think we, we should debate the logic of competition of systems in a future episode, Alan, and we'll talk about it a little bit in the G7 outcomes in a moment. But let me throw this conversation back to you with a provocative quote from Morrison's speech which I could imagine you know, the PM himself saying directly to you in response to your critique and invocation of the 2017 foreign policy white paper. Quote, the view the world hasn't changed in the last five years is disconnected from reality. Things have changed. Accelerating trends are working against our interests, end quote. Now, I imagine you'll agree with the observation of change but disagree with how the government is responding to that change.
1: Well, to be a bit immodest, uh, Darren, I've left a long trail of statements on the public record well before it became the conventional wisdom, Mm. the effect that the international order had fundamentally changed. And I'm not sure now that there's anyone left who doubts it. And as you can guess, my problem is not with acknowledging the change, it's with the particular responses we've made, including the assumption that Australia's interests are best served by reinforcing a new binary division: freedom versus autocracy, without too much definition about what that means. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, our second item: the Prime Minister left Perth and flew to Singapore to meet with his counterpart, Prime Minister Lee Shen Lung. Analysis of this meeting focused pretty much exclusively on the advice that Prime Minister Lee gave to Australia on how to manage bilateral relations with China. So I'll throw this straight to you, Alan. What was Prime Minister Lee's advice and did you find it persuasive?
1: Uh, It was interesting that the PM chose to go to Singapore first. Um, Singapore is certainly, I think, the Southeast Asian country closest to us in policy terms, and the bilateral relationship continues to deliver real value on both sides. And in fact, although there wasn't much um, coverage of it, I was struck by the different tone we heard on China from Lee during the joint press conference. As you said, can I just quote him for a moment? Sure. The relationship with China, this is Lee, is one of the biggest foreign policy questions for every major power in the world. You need to work with the country. It's going to be there. It's going to be a substantial presence and you can cooperate with it. You can engage with it. You can negotiate with it. And you don't have to become like them. Neither can you hope to make them become like you. You have to work on that basis. There will be rough spots and not a few. And you have to deal with them, but deal with them as issues in a partnership which you want to keep going and not issues which add up to adversity which you're trying to suppress. Now, I would say to that, too, right, but Australian policymakers basically said nothing at all. So I was surprised that there was more commentary about that difference, particularly because if that's coming from Singapore, then we can assume that the other ASEAN countries are, apart from Vietnam, for example, further away than that. So I just wonder whether it foreshadows greater drift between Australian and Southeast Asian positions.
0: Mm. Or at least an attempt to persuade Australia to, to to calm down a little bit in its response. I mean, in terms of what Australian officials have said, I did see some interesting comments from Peter Dutton, the Defence Minister, that were made around the same time that Morrison was in Singapore. I can't be sure who said what first. But he said that Australia wanted, quote, a productive relationship with China, but we don't accept breaking of the law, we don't accept interference in our electoral processes, we don't accept interference in processes of democracy. And I think for me then, the question is whether it's possible to construct a synthesis of the Lee and Dutton comments in principle, let alone once you take into account domestic politics, to bring this sort of bickering couple metaphor of Australia and China that we've, I think, discussed in the past. Right now, Canberra seems to be getting advice from a trusted friend, an outsider, to the relationship. And that friend is saying, you need to move a bit more in the direction of conciliation um, with your bickering spouse. Uh, It's sort of marital advice, is sort of how I was reading it. And I would hope that Lee is giving the same advice to Beijing. The question is then, is there common ground? What could each side give, if we want to use that term, in terms of a conciliatory gesture to the other that could begin a positive cycle. I think the problem is that both capitals have concluded the costs of ongoing tensions are just not large enough to consider what could be done or to need to consider what could be done to begin the process of rapprochement and that they'll only come to the table if the other side moves first in a major way unilaterally. In theoretical terms, you know, I think of this as they have wind sets that just don't overlap. There is no overlap between their interests right now. I'll give you the last word here, Alan. Any, any reaction to that?
1: You're probably right about the unlikelihood of anything happening, but I'm not asking for that. You know, I don't call on anyone to give anything. You talk about reconciling the views of Lee and, and Dutton. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with what Dutton says. It's what he doesn't say. <laughs> That's where the problem lies. The whole question is the language you use about yourself and your interlocutor, the sort of framing you deploy. And this is this is not hard. There's nothing different in that from what we learn about any human interaction of any sort.
0: I guess continuing on that theme of marital discord, maybe even just the language itself is seen as a material concession, right? You... you your yeah. back, yeah. back is yeah. up and you're, you're not giving an inch. Uh, anyway, well, let's move on to the G7 Leaders Summit that brought together the UK host with the US, Germany, Japan, France, Italy, and Canada, plus the EU. And we had four other nations invited for what Prime Minister Morrison termed the G7 plus dialogue. And this was Australia, South Korea, South Africa and India, although Prime Minister Modi couldn't attend given the ongoing COVID-19 crisis there. Alan, let's start big picture. Was there much significance to Australia being invited to attend?
1: I think there's no doubt that it was good for Australia that our Prime Minister was a guest at the G7 as he was for Macron in 2019. It gives us access to an important international conversation even though he didn't attend all the sessions or participate directly in the uh, communique drafting. The G7, which everyone thought was sort of uh, fading into irrelevance, has attracted new interest basically because of who's not there rather than who is there. It's sort of rebadging itself from its original purposes, the Club of Advanced Western Industrial Economies, to a club of liberal democracies and market economies and it's not clear whether this is going to give it a new lease of life. It's certainly, you know, never going to get back to the position it was in in the mid-1980s when it was sort of central to the plaza accords which uh, fundamentally revalued currencies. Mm. And the communique itself, what did you make of that? Uh, You know, plenty of promises in it but few specifics and details on the money for projects like the proposed B3W, uh, Build Back Better for the World. This is, of course, the other competitor for the BRI. And look, we've talked about this before. Haven't we had about five discussions about responses to the uh, BRI? And I'm just getting mm. lost in all the different strains of the West's uh, response. This must be the Delta variant, at least. <laughs> Uh, There was similarly more that could have been done on commitments to the developing world for help on climate change and on the uh, provision of COVID-19 vaccinations to all countries.
0: Mm, Yeah, on B3W, the challenges that they face is that unlike the BRI, which is funded by state capital, Western taxpayers are going to be much less accepting of funding infrastructure in developing countries. And that's why this new initiative is focused, I think, rightly on trying to mobilise private capital. But the challenge there, of course, is to create the right incentive structure. Western businesses are very wary and see lots of risks of getting into the developing world. You know, here's how I see it. If they have any sense, the architects of this new B3W initiative realise they aren't ever going to replace BRI. There's, there's simply too much of an unmet need for infrastructure. You know, there's plenty of space for both. The main legitimate concern is the side effects of BRI, poorly performing projects, corruption, low standards, unsustainable debt. And the goal therefore needs to be to improve BRI projects rather than to compete directly with them. And of course, the question is, how do you do that? Is it some shiny new alternative? I'm not sure yet, because the problem is that if the alternative is just going to replicate the approaches of the existing development banks, like the World Bank, which already have high standards, then why would an autocracy-curious leader in a developing country go for that, right? Like, you know, um, or will B3W make loans when the World Bank would not? Like, will it reduce its standards somewhat in order to be more attractive? So I get it. Maybe you need a shiny vision. You know, one of the ones I remember was the Blue Dot Network, which I haven't seen much discussion of in the last yeah. few years. So that doesn't seem to have cut through. But my memory was that it was adopting my approach here of, of focusing on standards and maybe just trying to do good due diligence just doesn't get you that kind of cut through. It strikes me that the most effective mechanism for improving BRO projects is going to come from Beijing itself. You know, we've seen political pushback against Chinese projects in various countries and at least a symbolic recognition from Chinese leaders that they need to change their approach. You know, and so I think you've got an inbuilt mechanism of correction and the West might not be able to do that much to change that trajectory. But on the G seven more broadly, Alan, it's worth asking what is interesting and unique about it. And I was intrigued by your point that it does seem to be increasing in relevance. I mean after the global financial crisis, you know, back in 2008-2009, it really felt like momentum had shifted to the G20. But now, you know, as you say, you've got China as a peer competitor, you've got Russia as a prominent actor, they are not there and and maybe that is shifting things back to make the G7 the, the a premier, you know, vehicle again. And you're seeing more vigor, more energy in this G7 summit as a result. Admittedly, from a very low bar, given that there was no G7 meeting last year that was supposed to be in the US. And Trump, of course, famously vetoed the communique in 2019. Uh, so and I'm... he was going
1: to uh, to invite Putin as one of his special guests <laughs> last year, wasn't he? Yeah.
0: yeah, I think that's right, yeah. But I think you can sort of crystallise it in the question, do you think Scott Morrison is going to value attending the G7 more than he will the G20 this year?
1: He's certainly going to like the G20 uh, because he's among friends and it's easy, but the grim truth is that unless we can work in the G20 on the harder issues, we're just not going to make very much progress.
0: Yeah, on this question of progress, I mean, it, we're not seeing much progress in, in in many multilateral institutions right now, and it does seem that so much activity is happening at the minilateral level, I guess in the hope that minilateral cooperation can later seed seed more abroad, more broad-based cooperation. And so here you have a minilateral grouping that is defined by its members being wealthy democracies. And I guess that means that if any grouping is going to focus on democracy and liberal values, it's going to be these guys. Given that China is a non-democracy and prefers to work bilaterally much of the time, if you're looking to distinguish your brand of international leadership, you need to be selling the liberal democracy part and the multi or at least the minilateral part of the equation. But I do think that individual countries haven't worked out how to position themselves yet in this emerging world disorder. So I'm not surprised that groupings like the G7 are not putting forward plans of great substance yet. One notable feature of the communique were these direct references to China both on being transparent in further COVID-19 origin inquiries, but also calling out Beijing on issues of human rights with specific reference to Xinjiang and Hong Kong and even the Taiwan Strait got a mention. And there were even more indirect references, such as on issues of forced labour, coal-fired power plant construction, technology standards
1: and media freedom. What did you make of all this, Alan? The Chinese responded to the criticisms in the communique, which, uh, by the way, were far less specific than in Australia's recent joint statements with Japan, by tartly noting that, quote, the days when global decisions were dictated by a small group of countries are long gone. Uh, Well, we'll see. But let me just add one dimension to your comment that China prefers to work bilaterally. I think that, in a general sense, that's true of all big countries. But as interesting uh, for me is the emphasis that China puts on the UN system. And as we discussed in an earlier episode, they differentiate this from the rules-based order. So in some ways, Beijing, I think, does prefer to work multilaterally because it believes that it can bring the developing world along with us. So there's a dimension of multilateralism that we're not all that keen on.
0: Yeah, I think I agree. And that's a good thing that they want to work multilaterally. Though my read on Chinese foreign policy is that Beijing is supportive of multilateralism when its core interests are not at stake. And the UN is an effective way of managing problems around the world that it doesn't want to get too involved with, but can still exercise leadership on. But once you get close to home, it's going to want to do things bilaterally. And as you say, this may be no different to other great powers. But the question is As China's interests expand further, I guess the worry is the consequences that a focus on bilateralism have when more and more things get carved out from the wider system. But to me, again, it's notable that while there was no unanimity on China among the G7 members, and you had leaders like Macron kind of walking back some of the the tone of the statements by himself afterwards, it's clear that China was front and centre of everything. Every leader is trying to work out how to manage their bilateral relationship with China and how they feel about the role Chinese leadership is playing in the global order. Yes, things are in a state of disequilibrium, but I think if you measure summits or the effectiveness of summits by their agenda setting role and by their ability to sort of strengthen patterns of cooperation, then I think you could say the G7 is a success. But if you measure their effectiveness by their ability to deliver concrete policy solutions then, as you say, Alan, on things like infrastructure and vaccines, it left a bit to be desired. All right, let's turn finally then to the Prime Minister's bilateral meetings. First, he did not meet individually with Joe Biden. For some reason, Boris Johnson showed up as well. What happened there, do you think?
1: I don't know. I I simply have no idea. It's being explained or spun, one or the other as a mutual decision, but it does strike me as odd. Um, Biden and Morrison haven't had a chance to meet personally yet. They've done so over Zoom, but not in person. And I would have thought that Morrison would rather have had a one-on-one with the President of the United States than the tripartite meeting that resulted. So, you know, was it post-Brexit Britain looking for a role and uh, sort of elbowing its way into the room? I don't don't know. (laughs) Well,
0: next, Morrison did meet bilaterally with Boris Johnson and one outcome was an in-principle deal on a new post-Brexit free trade agreement between the two countries. Now, we know there had been some theatrics leading up to this point. If we remember, the UK Trade Minister planning to sit poor Dan T in an uncomfortable chair during negotiations. But in the end, something was agreed, although we don't have all the specific details yet. Jeff Wilson of the Perth US Asia Centre had a good thread on Twitter about what we know so far. And for me, the big takeaways were, you know, most goods in the bilateral relationship are already not affected by tariffs. So the substantive reduction on barriers doesn't seem that large. But I, I think you can't separate the economic consequences from the political optics here. Boris Johnson especially needs multiple free trade agreements to make good on his promise of a global Britain in this post-Brexit era. So Alan, if we stipulate that the economic benefits are not, you know, earth-shattering, do you think that nevertheless this deal was still in Australia's national interest?
1: Look, I'm increasingly conscious these days, Darren, that I'm one of the last remaining members of an endangered species, which is people who believe that open multilateral trade delivers better results than managed trade, meaning better outcomes for the citizens of our country. I think the evidence is overwhelming uh, for that, and you just have to look at the second half of the 20th century to see it, and that in due course the sheer logic of the position will reassert itself, but for the time being, I'm afraid we're going to have to wallow in an awful lot of nonsense about the benefits of managed trade agreements like this, including the idea that the paucity of economic benefits will be made up for on the uh, on the political side. Mm. I slightly cringed hearing Tian describe the agreement as a <laughs> writing over wrong. Uh, it, because this, in his view, made it up for Britain's perfidy you know 50 years ago and joining the common market <laughs> I and mean, honestly get over it. But basically, I, I think it's okay, but not much. And it certainly won't go near enabling us to diversify trade away from China to the extent that the government wants. I I really like. I was sort of reading Martin Wolf in the Financial Times this morning, and he had a line in it to the effect that what was driving the forces of American protectionism was xenophobia and nostalgia, and I think there's an awful lot of that going around at the moment.
0: Yeah, I agree. This backlash against globalization is much more powerful than the one in the late 1990s, and is having a real impact on electoral politics, as we've discussed. And you can see the Biden team knows this, and they know they need to remodel the order, but without breaking it. And gosh, that's a very difficult task. The PM's final stop was in Paris to meet with the French President Macron. The headline I saw was that Macron supported Australia in its difficulties with China, with France rejecting any, quote, coercive economic measure against Australia and describing such measures as, quote, a blatant breach of international law, end quote. He continued by saying, I know you are on the front lines of tensions that can exist in the region, of threats, sometimes of intimidation, and I want to say again here how much we stand by your side, end quote. I should note that Boris Johnson had earlier expressed similar sentiments. Now, of course, the centre of the Australia-France relationship at the moment is the submarine contract, where a French company is supposed to build 12 new subs
1: around 90 billion dollars.
0: Any takeaways for you from this meeting Alan?
1: It's interesting how the balance of interests between Australia and the UK and France is changing at the moment. Unusually both London and Paris have things they want from us that outweigh I think the things we want from them. As we were just talking about I'm in Britain newly divorced from Europe is looking for fresh partners and for continuing relevance. And certainly, as you said, uh, Boris Johnson wanted to signal through the FTA that alternative economic paths would work for the UK. Macron has the interest of the multi-billion dollar submarine project and France's determination to play a part as the theatre of global strategic competition shifts from Europe and the North Atlantic to the Indo-Pacific. So as a result of this, Scott Morrison would have been pleased with the reception he got.
0: Okay, thanks, Alan. I think we'll leave the discussion there, though I know there was a lot we haven't covered even in these last few days since our last episode. For example, we didn't really discuss the 2 plus 2 meeting between Australia and Japan, or that Defence Minister Dutton gave his first major speech as minister at Aspie last week. And we also had the NATO summit and Biden's meeting with Putin.
1: Yeah, look, I'll just say that on the Peter Dutton speech, it's interestingly clear that he wants to put his stamp on the defence department and on defence policy and that he wants to do it quickly. He's saying it more and he's saying it more bluntly than Linda Reynolds did. Uh, He's certainly asserting control over both the civilian side of the department and to the extent that he can, uh, much more difficult, the ADF. You know, this includes the floating ideas about getting more marines in Darwin Announcing the inevitable upgrades necessary to keep the Collins class submarines going longer, and uh, welcoming the Royal Navy back to this (laughs) part of the world. But Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be more action on that front. Indeed. All right. Let's wrap up with reading, listening, and watching, Alan. What do you have for us this week? Well, you know, you know how fascinated I am by Australian foreign policy. How much I love it. Discussions here, but even I, even I, Darren, sometimes feel a need to elevate my mind to broader horizons. So I wanted to recommend Are We Alone in the Universe? You can't get much broader than that, which is a conversation between Sam Harris and Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is an astrophysicist and director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York, on uh, Harris's Making Sense uh, podcast. they they talk about all the things that I really loved as a teenage sci-fi fan. Uh, You know, the the size of the universe, the search for extraterrestrial life, and the renewed interest we've seen in UFOs. And uh, Tyson makes the sobering point that if the COVID-19 virus was the nearest equivalent we're going to get to preparation for an alien invasion, then the signs for our survival don't look
0: particularly (laughs) good. Okay, Alan. I've got three things to recommend, but I'll make them quick. The first is Stephen Colbert, as you know, hosts The Late Show now, and and he had his first show back in studio after the COVID-19 disruption. Uh, And his main guest was Jon Stewart, um, who I've been a fan of for, for decades now. And they had a very interesting conversation about Covid nineteen and the lab leak hypothesis. You know, John Stewart feels very strongly about this. He's a big proponent that it came out of a lab, and Colbert, who is a dear friend, the two of them are very close. You could see, was quite uncomfortable with where the conversation went. How just really focused Stewart was, and also a little bit wild. I mean, maybe this was part of them sort of releasing themselves after such a long period of time cooped up. So it's interesting because if the lab leak is going to really go mainstream, it's these kinds of discussions that will get it there. And the framing that Stuart uses is a very effective device, I think, and, and worth you know worth it from an analytical point of view to think about.
1: So long as we're listening to the health experts, uh, t- well,
0: you and I are, Alan. But I mean, it's the media how the story gets a life of its own. I think in through mechanisms like this that we need to study. Um, Second, Tom Wright, my friend from the Brookings Institution, has a very nice piece in the Atlantic on the Biden doctrine and this clash of systems, which I hope we'll talk about in a future episode. Uh, And third, my relatively new ANU colleague, Ben Herskovich has a new Substack newsletter. He's joined the Substack Army. Um, It's called Beijing to Canberra and Back. It's only a few issues old, but it's fantastic. And I think what Ben contributes to the conversation is he has only recently left government, but he also has sterling academic pedigree. So he's able to combine the academy and policy now together in what is the most important issue of Australian foreign policy today. So Beijing to Canberra and back is the name of the newsletter. And of course, I will link to it in the show notes. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Dominic Yap for research and audio editing today. And of course, thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.